0: Hello, everyone. This is Nachum Siegel, and it's time for another edition of JM Rewind. Uh, Today we get an opportunity to check out more of the uh, wonderful conversations we've had on the air. We're going to start with uh, Michael Fragan. Michael Fragan is the host of Spin Class. He is our political analyst and uh, hit the Nachum Siegel Network. And uh, the day after the election, on Wednesday morning, he joined me to analyze and to uh, offer his opinion regarding the victory of Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton. So my conversation the day after Election Day with Michael Fragan, here it is for you on JM Rewind, right here at the Siegel Network. JM in the AM. He is the host of Spin Class on the Siegel Network, and he's our go-to man when it comes to anything political, local, national, international, etc. He is Michael Fragan, joins us on the morning after Election Day here at JM in the AM. Mr. Fragan, welcome back to JM in the AM wow like whoa well, well, you, you can't do this to us we need it we need a clear signal you got to pull over we, we can't we can't do this with a broken uh, with a broken oh,
1: sorry about that oh,
0: okay. there we go now now, now, okay. now, I, now I hear you much better well I mean there's discussion about replacing you as the host of spin class because as you know in my inner circle there was only one person who from June of 2015 on the day he announced Donald Trump, from June of 2015 until today, till late last night, early this morning, every day declared that Trump will win this election, and that's Stacey Siegel. She has said it every day from the moment he declared his candidacy, and I, of course, as many people know, never took it seriously, because I didn't think he could possibly win the nomination, and certainly not the uh, presidency. Uh, so there's talk, there's talk, Michael, of Stacey actually replacing you. What do you think of that? <laughs> hey,
2: look, you know what? Uh, she could buy out my contract, and it's fine. <laughs> But uh, I will tell you that my mother-in-law, to her credit, also regularly said, I think he's going to win. I'm afraid he's going to win. He's going to win. He's going to win. And she kept saying over the last couple of days, he's going to win. You're going to see. He's going to win.
0: And I think it's really emblematic of the attitude that some people have had, um, uh, you know, throughout this country of just, you know, being sick and tired of the uh, the same old thing, so to speak. And I And I said this to you, I don't know if I said this to you on the air or not, uh, after the third debate, I, I was always under the impression that he did a great job strategically in winning the Republican nomination, but never really garnered any more votes or any more, uh, you know, larger support after that. Boy, was I proven wrong, huh?
2: I, it did seem that way. You know, the $14 million that he got in the Republican primary, you know, he needed to go from 14 to 50 or whatever the final numbers were. Although, be mindful of the fact that Hillary Clinton did win the popular vote, apparently, um, you know, so uh, it, you know it is a it is a win, but uh, a substantial. It's a substantial win. It's a surprising win. But Hillary Clinton did win the popular vote. I don't think that that doesn't matter to me, and shouldn't matter to anybody, because you 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 win under the rules that you have. But yes, it did seem like Donald Trump was kind of runnerless for a long time as far as what he was trying to do and how he was trying to get there. But you got to give got to give his team credit, particularly Kellyanne Conway. You see huge change in Donald Trump. And his entire campaign, the entire attitude, um, uh, just the self-discipline over the last 10 days, over the last two weeks, where this race, the na- dynamics of this race really changed over that time.
0: But you know what's funny, and a lot of people have been saying this about the last 10 days and two weeks. I don't think this election was won over the last 10 days, two weeks. I think there was, there was so much of this sentiment brewing. I mean, now I say this, you know, with hindsight being twenty twenty, So much of this sentiment brewing over the last, uh, you know, year and a half then I think it really just came to a boil by the time we got to Election Day. I don't know if he would have kept his old, standard, Trump-like presentation. I don't know if he would have lost.
2: Well, I think that this election told us something, is that whoever the spotlight was on did poorly. Because these are two historically unlikable candidates, unlikable people. I mean, there's no question. Donald Trump comes into office as the most unliked presidential candidate ever. Hillary right. Clinton would have, would have been the most unlike presidential candidate ever. But whoever the spotlight was on, that was the person who started doing poorly. And for, for about, whether it was 10 days, two weeks ago, Donald Trump and his campaign made the decision, we are going to focus the spotlight on Hillary Clinton. We're not going to make any mistakes. We're not going to do all of some of these sidetrack uh, side issues that we have gotten ourselves into. And if it was all we focused the spotlight on her, we are going
3: to hold
2: her turnout was depressed if you look at urban centers compared to obama numbers in many of the cases that she needed to win i mean one of the reasons she lost wisconsin is because she did not do well in milwaukee she did not do well in places that she needed to do well she didn't do you know places that she would be expected to do well in michigan it's the same thing she didn't do well in places she needed to do well in philadelphia she underperformed in a lot of places So he did very, very well with white voters, and she underperformed with people that she needed to perform. But the the gaps in demographics in this election are startling.
0: Unbelievable. The whole thing is unbelievable. Um, especially based on expectations, you know, look at, I mean, I assume you're alluding to things like the women's vote and, uh, and minority votes, I mean, in certain circumstances. And college
2: educated, the gap between education and how, amongst white voters and how they voted in this election, Hillary Clinton won 28% of non-college educated, that's according to what I, that's what I saw early this morning, which is a startling number for a Democrat because... Generally, conventional wisdom is that Democrats do well amongst people who are have-nots right. uh, or people who are not, who are struggling with the economy, amongst the working class. And the Democrats just got killed amongst the white working class. They absolutely got killed at this election. And it didn't just cost... Um, you know, there are a lot of reasons you can come up with for it. You know, that Donald Trump is not a true conservative in many ways. He's a populist. It's a different message. And that message resonated with a lot of America that has... Unfortunately, missed out on that areas of the country that have had an economic boom.
0: Uh, Michael Fragan's with us. It's interesting how certain people over the last few weeks, especially, were surprised about some of the places he insisted, or his staff insisted, or the RNC insisted uh, that he campaign, uh, that he you know go and visit. And yet, it seems that that strategy. Well, obviously, being the victor, the strategy, of course, worked. But uh, you know, now, now you see that that counties and states that people walk into elections thinking they're, they're uh, uh, unflippable, so to speak. You see that with some hard work and the right strategy, one can flip them.
2: Yes. I mean, people, Donald Trump said over and over, and many people said that the upper Midwest is where we're going to win this election. And they continue to say the upper Midwest is where they're going to win the election. And the upper Midwest is where they won the election. It, it, that, that is actually how it happened. And it's quite remarkable that it happened that way because in, you know, places like Wisconsin, he didn't even do well in the primary.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: He didn't do well in the Republican primary, but he ends up winning the state in the general, a state that, you know, states that haven't gone to a Republican since 1988 or 1984.
3: Right. I mean,
2: just he, he won some of those states. And, yes, people were skeptical. I, look, I was skeptical. I'll be the first one to say I never thought it would happen. Uh, I do. I did acknowledge, and everybody should have acknowledged, and I think most people should have acknowledged that Hillary Clinton was a phenomenally flawed candidate. Right. It's just it's it's incredible in the end, with her, given her liabilities, that the you know that the Democratic Party tried to coronate her, and everybody should have seen it coming with her weakness with vis-a-vis Bernie Sanders, right. a seventy-year-old socialist. Uh, everybody should have seen her inability to 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 put him away, um, but. She, you know, she continued on, and really, she never really adjusted to, the, you know, to Donald Trump's.
0: Michael, are you there? Oh, don't tell me we lost Michael Fragan at this point in the conversation. <sighs> Michael, if you can hear me. M- oh, there you go. We, we, want we lost you. you got to make the point again. We lost you for the last 15 seconds.
2: Sorry, it's the vagaries of the cell phone. But the uh, I'm talking about the change election. 2008 was a change election. People want to change. Barack Obama won on change, and people still want change. And Donald Trump was changed, and Clinton was more of the same. Right. People just did not want another four years of the Clinton of Clinton presidency. When We're do I done with the Clinton?
0: When do I get to find out uh, one of my great curiosities, the Jewish vote percentage down in Florida?
2: Uh, I imagine there are some exit polls. I haven't seen anything yet, but uh, I imagine over the next couple of days there'll be there'll be something out there. Um, I don't. I pro- personally don't think it's going to be incredibly good um, for Trump, but uh, but we shall see. You never know. I mean, he's surprised people in the past.
0: Yeah, that's for sure. Um, so there you have it. I assume you saw some of the statements that came out of Israel, uh, some of the uh, right wing uh, political figures in Israel specifically. Who are assuming that uh, because of a Trump presidency they'll be able to adjust things according to their according to their wishes? Have you seen those statements out of Israel?
2: I have seen statements, and I will say uh, I went to David Friedman speak on Monday night. Uh, he was he spoke here in the Five Towns um, to uh, and I will say he very most impressive, very articulate. Um, certainly made all the right arguments uh, for supporting. Donald Trump is supporting the Republicans. If you uh, and I thought he was, I thought he was great. And if this is the type of policy that this administration is going to pursue, um, look, I hope that they pursue policies on behalf of Israel and the entire Middle East that are intelligent, well thought out, as David Friedman articulated. Uh,
0: Michael, a quick comment on the House and Senate. I mean, uh, w- once once we saw again with 2020 hindsight the way the presidential election went, I assume those two uh, were as expected.
2: Uh, which, I'm sorry, which,
0: House and Senate.
2: Uh, well, the Senate, I mean, the House was never in doubt, I don't think. I mean, I, th- I, I think that that was uh, you know, never going to be. I mean, we did lose a couple. The Republicans lost a couple seats. Um, you know, have to see. I think, you know, I hopefully will, you know, Donald Trump will not make a move against Paul Ryan. I think that would be a mistake, I think, to to, to go in and do that. But, you know, there is rumbling about that because, you know, of, because he values loyalty. I think that would be a mistake. If the Senate, look, the Senate ended up, once I saw in Indiana that Todd Young had defeated Evan Bay, I saw it was going to be an okay night. Uh, that was a surprise victory. Evan by an institution in Indiana, right. uh, coming back to reclaim his seat, and he won. I mean, he lost, and he just—it
0: was—you it, knew it was going to be
2: a good Republican night. And in fact, that actually portended for the for the Trump vote around the Midwest.
0: Really amazing. The whole, like I always say, great spectator sport. No, no night like last night. I can tell you that much. <laughs> Did you get it? No, be... no, not, not
2: at all. And I guess hats off to Stacey Siegel. Um, yeah, let's get, let's get her on, and you know, let's start.
0: Uh... I'm telling you, she asked me this morning if I want her to come on and uh, be interviewed. From the day he announced presidency that his candidacy for president, all through the entire process, till late last night, early this morning, she said every single day he will be the next president of the United States. Uh, Michael thank you so much and uh, continued success and we'll talk more politics obviously down the road.
2: Absolutely, thank you Dachem and as uh, as you have mentioned nobody has ever watched politics or will watch politics in the same way again after uh, this election.
0: No question about it, it'll be a long time for anybody thinks that any race is a foregone conclusion that's for sure. All right thank you Michael Fragan. There you have it. That was my conversation with Michael Fragan the day after Election Day after the victory of Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton. Next up, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Gurak, his brand new book, or actually I should say an updated version of his book on the Jews of Harlem. Uh, he joined me to discuss uh, Harlem today and um, all the different details about how it's becoming an even more Jewish community than it has been, and it's revisiting its roots uh, by becoming a Jewish community like it was almost a century ago. Dr. Jeffrey Gurak in this conversation with me, from JM and the AM on JM Rewind, right here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Uh, one of our favorite guests is with me uh, live via telephone. Dr. Jeffrey Gurak is the Libby Clapperman Professor of Jewish History at Yeshiva University. He is a prize-winning author. He has written or edited uh, 18 books in the area of American Jewish history. And the brand-new book is called The Jews of Harlem, The Rise, Decline, and Revival of of a jewish community it is a new york university press release you can go to nyupress.org for information dr jeffrey gurak welcome back to jm in the am
4: good morning Nachum. it's always a pleasure to speak to you in your community that's for sure
0: i greatly appreciate that uh... this is not the first time you're writing about jewish harlem
4: Well, when you were my student some 30 years ago, (laughs) uh, my first book was called When Harlem Was Jewish, 1870 to 1930. So this version is a rewrite of that first 60 years, and I added an additional 85 years, bringing the story up to literally the present day as Jews have returned to Harlem, and we're beginning to see the first glimmerings of the emergence of Jewish religious life in Harlem. It's been, it's been slow to evolve as far as religious life is concerned, but now there are a number of, a number of Minyanim, uh, almost typically Chabad was the first on the scene about ten years ago, but now there are a number of shuls uh, in existence, and in fact, uh, this Sunday, the Jewish Community Center of Harlem is opening. That's the first wa- first Jewish war in Harlem in over a hundred years. So, the book uh, revisits the first 60 years and then adds an additional 85 years. So, uh, you know, I keep all my records from, from 40 years ago and I was able to rewrite the book. And frankly, I have to tell you as my friend that um, when you write as a young scholar and you write as an older scholar, uh, you mature over time. And I think this book is a little bit more accessible than the earlier book, and as uh, I feel much more liberated in my writing these days. Uh, for example, in this book, I actually devote uh, two paragraphs to my own family history, because hmm. uh, my father grew up on Park Avenue, in a tenement on 100th Street, and I talk about the fact that uh, the four boys shared one bed in their three three room apartment, and that's the sort of thing, you know. A personal popular things that as just starting out in the business of scholarship I would be reticent to write about so right. I think people will find this book uh, a bit more accessible than the when Harlem was Jewish and brings the story up to the present day
0: I've heard authors say that as an older writer you have the reader in mind more would you say that's accurate my,
4: my, vo- my voice is different you know in the sciences, in math, for example, you might have a, a young person who's an e lawyer, genius, and uh, at age uh, 14 is doing differential calculus. But as a writer, the older you are and the more you write, and this is a message for all of us, the more you do, I think the better you become. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a little bit self-serving in saying this, but... I feel that my voice here is a far more personal voice. Right. I feel that I'm speaking to uh, my readers more than to doctoral advisors, because when Harlem was Jewish, you may recall, was my doctoral dissertation. Mm. So I've learned over the years, and I hope that it's reflected in the types of things that uh, I'm writing about uh, today. The other thing I want to say about the book in terms of where it fits into the, uh, the field of American Jewish history, that... Um, the field has changed, the field has evolved, and uh, I'm writing now about cultural history. I'm writing about Al Jolson, I'm writing about uh, Sophie Tucker, I'm talking about uh, the Gershwins, this type of thing. So I had to educate myself about Jewish contribution to the, uh, to the musical and cultural history of Harlem. After Jews moved out, there still was a Jewish entrepreneurial presence, and there was also a Jewish cultural presence working with African Americans in Harlem during the the 30s and 40s, in particular.
0: Hmm. Dr. Jeffrey Gorak is with us. The book is called "The Jews of Harlem." What what it, what was the original fascination? Understand, I, I understand it was a doctoral thesis, uh, but why that topic? What was your original attraction to uh, to doing something about Harlem?
4: Good question. So I was a child of the 60s, and I lived through an era in New York and New York City. New York Jury is my scholarly beat, where you know we grew up. Uh, um, memorializing Goodman, Schwerner and Cheney, these three martyrs in Philadelphia, Mississippi. And I also, we also lived through 1968-69, the teacher strike which pit, pitted blacks against Jews. So I wanted to write about a history of Jewish-black relations in the United States. And I said to my doctoral advisor, I'm going to do a book called Jews and Blacks in the Age of Jim Crow, from 1896 to 1954. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know what, uh, to do this right, Don't look at the interaction of intellectuals and scholars and the like and politicians. Try to find a place where Jews and blacks live together in the same neighborhood and what sort of interactions took place. So literally, Nachum, I looked out the window of Morningside Heights, Fairweather Hall of the History Department of Columbia, and I saw Harlem, and I said, gee... No one's ever studied Harlem before. So it was this engagement with black Jewish history that brought me to Harlem. But then as I started doing the book, the book is more about what does it mean to be a Jew, to leave the Lower East Side, the hub of Jewish life for immigrants, and to move uptown. What does it mean in terms of identification, uh, synagogue relationships, of uh, the rabbis, the teachers, and things of that sort. So the the original book ends up being more about internal Jewish life than the external black-Jewish relationship. And ironically, this book, by virtue of the fact that I'm talking about 85 years after Jews left Harlem en masse in the 1920s, uh, I'm writing more about Jewish-black interactions than in the uh, original book. And the other thing I want to say is about this, that from the Harlem book, you were kind enough to mention that I've written a number of books subsequent to that. Right. All of the things that I wrote are somehow connected to the Harlem story. And I'll give. And you know, you and I are big sports fans, right? <laughs> and I wrote a book about Judaism and sports. Right. The first shul in America to have a pool and a shul together was the Institutional Synagogue of Harlem on 116th Street between 5th and uh, Lenox Avenue. So that idea that you come to play and you may stay to pray, which was the goal of the institutional synagogue and of the Jewish center on the west side and of many conservative and orthodox synagogues, that idea, which was emblematic in my sports book, began with the Harlem story. So in many respects, I'm very grateful to Harlem because it gave me uh, a hook to write about so many other things that uh, have informed what I've written as a scholar over the last uh, two generations my goodness you know i've been privileged to teach at yeshiva now this is my 39th year wow. at yeshiva wow. and i uh, had a wonderful experience there and i have to say that one of the things about being at yeshiva is that yeshiva has given me the opportunity to write about what interests me as an american jewish historian you know people who teach elsewhere end up teaching people who are trained as modern jewish historians end up teaching the zohar which is not my area, but fortunately, given the fact that Yeshiva has the largest Jewish studies department in the entire country, that uh, I've been able to teach what I'm interested in. So the feedback from my students has been something that's also uh, energized me in terms of doing this work.
0: book is called The Jews of Harlem, The Rise, Decline, and Revival of a Jewish Community. Dr. Jeffrey Gorak is with us. Um are, are, you you mentioned black jewish relations and the uh you know how how it's possible that some people may be surprised that there was a close relationship between the two communities are, are there two personalities at any point early 1900s mid 1900s or even today uh, that you could point to that symbolized the closeness or the cooperation between the black and jewish community
4: well, one of the things I'm arguing in the book, that there's no one Jewish voice with reference to African-Americans, and, and similarly there's no one African-American voice, so that among Jews you have people who are very supportive of the African-American community, and there are Jews who are restrictionist. Joel Spingarn, a Jew who was one of the founders of the NAACP, was very much involved, and this may surprise everyone. In integrating Harlem, people are unaware of the fact that in many places in Harlem in the 20s and 30s, even though it, the neighborhood is predominantly African, um, African-American, there are many restaurants in Harlem that were off-limits to African-Americans. Hmm. And Spin Gone was one of these people who pushed for integration. Another example was um, Leo Brecker and Frank Schiffman. They were the owners and operators of the Apollo Theater, this great mecca sure. of African-American theatrical and musical uh, opportunity. And they were people who said, everyone sits together. Blacks are not segregated in the, in the balcony. Uh, everyone works together. So they were people who were very, very supportive of African-Americans. And in the 1960s, uh, there were some attacks against Schiffman with some radical black groups who said that, in fact, he was out to uh, help himself more than the community. And stepping up to the plate, interesting metaphor, was <laughs> Jack Roosevelt Robinson, who said, no, Schiffman and Brecker have a long history of working among uh, uh, African Americans. So what I argue in the book is there's no one Jewish voice. There's good, bad, and ugly in terms of, of that relationship. And similarly, you have the Amsterdam News, which was very supportive of of Jewish efforts, at the same time, there were uh, a number of notorious um, African-American black nationalists, predecessors of, uh, of Louis Farrakhan, going back to the 1920s. So it's a nuanced story. It's a complicated story. And ironically, now, 40 years later, I'm getting back to the original motivation for writing this book, to say when we look at black-Jewish relationships, it's a very complicated uh, story. so I think people will be uh, intrigued uh, intrigued by that as well.
0: I've had the pleasure of uh, of on more than one occasion of seeing the Lower East Side of Manhattan through your eyes, and uh, you know, re- really reliving in just a couple of hours uh, American Jewish history in such an important place. Uh, in reference to such an important era. And we see many synagogues and institutions, obviously many of them you know, not active anymore, but you know what I mean. Certainly, mm-hmm. certainly the edifices uh, are viewable. Uh, if, if we would do the same thing in Harlem, would there be plenty for us to see? Are there plenty of Jewish sites of the last 100 years that you could point out?
4: There, almost all the Jewish sites are now churches. But it, it's sort of interesting. When the first book came out, I was doing walking tours of Harlem, and now I'm back doing walking tours of Harlem, and you have uh, the Old Temple Israel, which was on 120th Street in Lenox a. and Lenox Avenue. Go there, you see this this beautiful building with Jewish iconography in the uh, uh, in the outside. Ohap Synagogue, which has been for the longest time, 95th Street uh, between Columbus and Amsterdam. Uh, that building is still there. The I.S. The Institutional Synagogue. So there are a number of synagogues that are now churches that have survived, but you have to understand that the shul that my grandparents adopted in, the Homer Young Men's Association of Harlem, was a storefront. There were over a hundred different congregations of Jews, particularly in East Harlem among the poor Jews, who rented out space that didn't have buildings. So um, architecturally speaking, the Lower East Side, the old Lower East Side, and you know It's become gentrified as much as Harlem has become gentrified, probably more than Harlem has become gentrified. Uh, There's much less in terms of what you can see, but there certainly is a lot uh, that's that's worth talking about within Harlem. But if if you go to 116th Street and you look at the old building, on either side of it, you have a whole new string of stores and buildings. And fortunately for me, when I do these tours... That building has survived as a church, because I wouldn't want to say to people, you know, look at this area, this is where the synagogue used to be. So those synagogues have survived as churches, and uh, they're very interesting to uh, look at the uh, the gentrification of Harlem uh, in the present day.
0: Dr. Jeffrey Gorak is with us. The Jews of Harlem is the book, The Rise, Decline, and Revival. Of a Jewish community, uh, some people who remember the uh, '60s and '70s, uh, where the bulk of the Upper West Side Jewish community, I think we could say, were, we're in the '60s and '70s, meaning West '60s and West '70s. Uh, we we saw over the next uh, twenty, thirty years, uh, the community and the epicenter of the community really move uptown. Very, very active now in the '80s and '90s, low 100s. Uh, is is this now the revival of the Jewish community of Harlem? Just an extension of that? Or is it more of a separate type of development, the revival of the
4: community? It, it, it's a very, it's very much con, uh, connected. Over the last ten years ago, there were already more Caucasians and African Americans in Harlem, and Jews have been part of that return to Harlem. And in fact, from a real estate from a real estate point of view, it's almost becoming prohibitive to to buy a brownstone in Harlem Harlem today and there has been a migration from uh, from the west side and to some extent from the lower east side as well into Harlem uh, uh, occupying some of these uh, buildings and from a religious point of view the west side Aruv has been extended into Harlem so we can anticipate you know when you have an Aruv in a community mm-hmm. that's a sure sign that traditional Jews will be moving in uh, my expectation is that the numbers of Jews coming into Harlem of a traditional nature is, is, in fact going to grow. But the other dynamic here is, if we look broadly at New York jury, the fact is that gentrified neighborhoods are not initially religious. It's only over the course of time as the community begins to grow. So there have been Jews in Harlem returning to Harlem over the last ten years. It's only the last, the last few years we're beginning to see signs of the. Uh, revival of jewish community life in harlem so it's uh it's a uh, i end the book by saying jewish harlem is a work in progress hmm. so we'll see what uh, we'll see what develops uh, but again uh when you walk the st- my wife and i have frequently during the summer walked the streets of harlem and uh we feel very comfortable there and uh it's a gentrified neighborhood. It's a safe neighborhood. Now, I sound like the Chamber of Commerce in Harlem. But, <laughs> but, the, but the truth of the matter is, you know, I have had this affinity for this community. Um, there was an early review of the book came out that called the review uh, Harlem on His Mind, which was, which was a play on words because uh, back in the 1960s, there was a very controversial exhibit at the Metropolitan Museum of Art called Harlem on my mind, which attacked Jews
3: mm. so now
4: Harlem on my mind has been part of my part of my life uh for the uh, last forty years and in a sense if you go back to my uh, to my father 's life uh, uh, there 's been a arat connection to Harlem going back to 1905. so that's uh, that's very special for me too
0: can you uh, can you tell me about the uh, the two photographs on the cover of the book are, are those the same building
4: the, the that that building was the Beit Midrasha Gadol of Harlem,
0: which was where? What was the address?
4: Which was on hundred and fifth Street between Madison and Fifth Avenue. It's no longer there. It was an extension. It was an extension of the Beit Midrasha HaGadol of Norfolk Street, down your neck of the woods. Right. And in Harlem's heyday, there were a number of landmark synagogues that either had branches on harlem or moved uptown to harlem you know you and i have talked a number of times about the eldridge street synagogue right dashi of uh eldridge street mm-hmm. well there was a uptown eldridge street uh, uh excuse me kahala dashi in harlem on 115th street if i'm not mistaken and in the book there's an interesting story i think a controversial story of the battle that ensued downtown when the rich Jews, the newly rich Jews, called all rightniks of uh, downtown, wanted to move the shul uptown, you know, take the money and run, so to speak,
3: right. <laughs> and I
4: characterize it as one of the first examples of what we call, and you know, I I I give the good, the bad, and ugly. I tell it straight uh, of what I call synagogue imperialism, right. which has been an issue for our community since since that day. Yeah. Um, And uh, it's something which Jews have had to deal with over the course of time. So I think there's resonance from the the Harlem story connected to the Lower East side and also connected to uh, what happens to Jews in Gotham after they leave uh, and move elsewhere in the 1920s.
0: What do you think in general of the uh, incredible growth and um, gentrification going on in the entire island of Manhattan? We see what's going on in Washington Heights. We read about Inwood. I would guess the area between uh, Harlem and Washington Heights will also uh, go through its own renaissance at some point in the near future. I mean, it, it seems like anywhere on that island now, uh, is uh, the arrow is only pointing up.
4: Well, the gentrification of Manhattan, if you take a look at one of my earlier books called Jews in Gotham, which I published five years ago, I point out that even during the toughest times in New York City, Talking about the late seventies during the Beam administration and the early Koch administration, you began to see signs of people not wanting to not wanting to commute into the city, want seeing Manhattan again as, as their home. You know, uh, one of the great blessings of teaching at Yeshiva is that when I teach at Stern College on Christmas morning, and I, I live in Riverdale, I'm able to drive in and teach at Stern takes me seven minutes to drive from my home in Riverdale, <laughs> right. and normally it takes an hour. Right. So people, a lot of people, and I, and I love Long Island, I love Long Island Jews, but I also <laughs> pity them who are on the Long Island distressway who have to drive into New York or take the Long Island Railroad into the city. I, I'm very interested in rapid transit history of New York City. Anyway, what I'm saying is that each one of these neighborhoods, reflects the fact that people want to live in close proximity to their work, right. and in fact, for the Harlem story, it's history repeating them, itself. Why did Jews move to Lenox Avenue in 1905? Because the subways were, were just built, and you could live uptown. If you owned a factory, you could live in quasi-suburbia, although it's still in Manhattan, and get down to work within uh, 15, uh, 15 or 20 minutes. One of the sort of jokes in the book is that when Harlem first became Jewish in the 1870s, Harlem was geographically separate from downtown. And if you wanted to get from 125th Street to Battery Park in the summertime, the only way to get there was by steamboat. And it took between 45 minutes and an hour to get downtown. Well, we're opening the Second Avenue uh, subway eventually. Right. At this point during rush hour, it takes between, oh, 45 minutes to an hour to get downtown. (laughs) So some things have changed and some things (laughs) remain uh, the same. (laughs) Studying the growth of a city through rapid transit is a really interesting way of looking at the mention of urban growth. So what I'm trying to say is that this book talks about Jewish history. It talks about African-American history, but it also is... Gives you some insight into the evolution of uh, this great city of New York, which is uh, my hometown. And were, there, of course, uh, were there any
0: uh, were there any Jewish government officials that represented Harlem at any point? Not necessarily in the House of Representatives, but in any capacity that, of any significance.
4: Well, Jacob Cantor, who ended up on the board of Yeshiva in 1920s, who was a congressman in uh, in Harlem, uh, became uh, Manhattan Borough President. And, of course, there were a number of uh, pretty uh, important uh, congressmen from the Harlem District. For example, here's here's an interesting connection. Um, Isaac Siegel, who was the um, president of the Institutional Synagogue in 1916, a year before the synagogue was established, was elected um, uh, to Congress from that district. It was an interesting election. You had three Jewish candidates running for office You had Morris Hillquit, who was a socialist, who said, vote for me. I have the interests of laboring people at heart. Uh, There was Bernard Rosenblatt, who was not related to Yussela Rosenblatt, who was the most famous chazan in in Harlem. Uh, He was uh, the executive secretary of the Federation of American Zionists, and he said, vote for me because I'm a Zionist. And Isaac Siegel said, I'm an American Orthodox Jew. And one of his campaign slogans was, if elected, I will be proud to speak both Yiddish and English in the halls of the United States Congress, which only begs the question, with whom would he have spoken Yiddish to in the House, in, in the House of Representatives? And the answer probably is Meyer London, yes, who was a socialist from the Lower East Side. Right. Oh, one, how did Siegel win? It was a very close election. He won because he was very friendly with the Italian-American district leader, a fellow named... Fiorello Laguardia,
3: who go. assumed
4: that position when Siegel became a state uh, uh, supreme court justice uh, in the uh, in the 1920s, and of course Laguardia was a fluent Yiddish speaker. Right. He was. He was once accused by an opponent of being an anti-Semite, right. which he certainly wasn't. And in response, Laguardia said, "I'd like to debate Henry Frank over my alleged anti-Semitism in a debate which would have." Should be entirely conducted in uh, in Yiddish,
3: <laughs> and I
4: have to think that we as Americans would have been much better off if the two uh, presidential candidates today would have spoken in Yiddish, because that would be a way that very few people would understand what either of them was saying.
0: Amen to that. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners' sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Brooklyn County at ninety one point nine, on the FM dial broadcasting live the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey, around the world on the web, JMAM.org, and, of course, on the NSN app. Dr. Jeffrey Gurak, the book is The Jews of Harlem, The Rise, Decline, and Revival of a Jewish Community. My cantorial friends would be angry at me if I didn't ask you which synagogue Cantor Yeselor Rosenblatt was most associated with in Harlem.
4: He was the chazin of the Oheb Tzedek Synagogue. He had a sweetheart contract, which meant he only had to be in shul to Daven, <coughs> excuse me, once every four weeks for Shabbat Mevorachim, of course, Shabbat Mevorachim, uh, praying for the the, uh, the inauguration of the new month is a cantorial signature piece, and it was said that when Rosenblatt, Daven, the women in the balcony swooned, uh, and <laughs> Ozi, Opsedek, was also the site of the, one of the sites of the day-long funeral of the great Yiddish writer, Sholem Aleichem, the funeral. In, it was in 1916. The funeral started in the, in the Bronx, and then it went to Harlem, and uh, Rosenblatt recited Kehillah Rahamim and then it went to Lower East and then he was buried in Queens. So that was a real travelogue for for, America, for New York Jews, and it, it took place in Or and it, it was it was one of the signature synagogues of of that time, and it it survived quite well, and it's, it's it has been for the longest time on uh, 95th Street, Amsterdam, and and Columbus.
0: Dr. Jeffrey Gorak is the Clapman Professor of Jewish History at Yeshiva University, a prize-winning author, written or edited 18 books in American Jewish history. The new one is called The Jews of Harlem, The Rise, Decline, and Revival of a Jewish Community. It's a, a New York University Press release. Dr. Gorak, I assume this is available everywhere at this point?
4: It's available on Amazon. It's also available in Barnes & Noble. And uh, maybe, God willing, will be some will be a major motion picture.
0: Uh, that would be nice. That would be pretty That'd cool. Be nice. uh, right. I, I got to take this opportunity. To, as I get older and older, I appreciate more and more uh, the mentorship uh, you for me that I've enjoyed over all these years. So all I could say is, in addition to thanking you for appearing today, is that thank you for all your guidance for me over the last many decades.
4: Well, many years ago, I said that uh, I predicted and uh, that you would make a. Uh, an important contribution to uh to american jewish life back then i really didn't understand how great they would actually be so this show is 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 so important to american jews and so important to everyone who listens to it so uh congratulations mazel tov fund uh I think it's 33 years that yeah. you've been, been doing this. So, it is. And we've had a very nice relationship, and uh, our families are close. So thank God for that.
0: Thank you so much. Mazal tov on the book, and uh, a very happy 5777 to you.
4: Thank you very much.
0: Dr. Jeffrey Gurak, one of our favorites. You're listening to JM in the AM. That was my conversation with Dr. Jeffrey Gurak recently, his book on the Jews of Harlem uh, that aired on JM in the AM. Up next, a conversation that I had with uh, Stephen Flato, Father of uh, Alyssa Flato, who was uh, murdered by Arab terrorists 21 years ago. Um, He appeared at a uh, bonds event at the Kingsway Jewish Center this past weekend. Uh, But I think it's a good idea to uh, revisit and hear what he had to say about uh, his own personal journey uh, and uh, trials and tribulations. And then in general, what his comments are about Israel bonds in uh, advance of the event. So Stephen Flato... With me from a Friday morning edition of JM in the AM. You're listening to JM Rewind right here at the Nahum Segal Network. Stephen Flato is with us live via telephone. Uh, he and I know each other longer than either of us care to admit. Steve Flato, welcome back to JM in the AM.
1: Good job, Shabbat, Nahum.
0: Wonderful to speak to you. It's hard to believe that it's already almost 21 years since Elisa's murder by the enemy by Arab terrorists in Israel. Um, that you have always been outspoken, both about the episode, the incident, the aftermath. You have been proactive in your work against the enemy, both on a uh, uh, on a um, legal level and, of course, on an outspoken activist level. Uh, how is it, and why is it that you've chosen this direction over these couple of decades?
1: Well, I've been with the uh, Israel Bond Speakers Bureau for the last 20 years, and I'm very excited that uh, 15 synagogues, are participating in Sunday evening's events. You know, we, we only have one family, and, and it's a Jewish family spread across the world. And whether you're here in the diaspora or whether you're in the state of Israel, I think that we're all the same, that we all have the same interests at heart, that we have the same history, we have the same future. And that's why it's so important for the Flatbush community to come out and support uh, Israel bond Sunday night at the Kingsway Jewish Center. As for me, what I learned many, many years ago, in, in all honesty, right after we completed shiva for Elisa, what was that you can't hide under the covers. You have to get up every morning, just like our brothers and sisters do it after tragedy, and you start putting one foot in front of the other, and you go towards the future. You don't look back. Yes, you take your losses, you build on your losses, you try to make yourself a better person, and and, and we go on. And, you know, Nakham, Israel Bond is such a great opportunity to show support for the people who in Israel every day that they face this horrible prospect, and I hate to say it, they don't know if they're coming home at night, because mm-hmm. the enemy is out there. And the way we confront that enemy is by building up the state of Israel. And you know, Israel bonds and the people in the diaspora are counted upon to to help Israel continue on a daily basis. You know, they're building the light rail. They're working on the train tower between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. Right. They're working, working on water desalination, and and these are things that were unheard of and unthought of when the country was founded in 1948. So I'm so glad to be with Bonds, and I'm so glad to be speaking uh, Sunday evening in Brooklyn.
0: The event is this Sunday. It's a flopbush Community Dessert Reception at the Kingsway Jewish Center. Stephen Flato's topic, A Terror Victim's Father, One Man's Story, starts at 7.30 p.m. at Kingsway on Nostrand Avenue in Brooklyn, New York. Phone number for information is the Manhattan office of Israel Bonds at two one two four four six five eight three five two one two four four six five eight three five. You know, I think there are a couple of other elements, Steve Flato. Um one is that um you're to be admired for the for the legal work you've done to try to hold the enemy uh enemy's feet to the fire to uh to take action in court against state-sponsored terrorism, which uh, I, I think has been... I, I can only imagine how painstaking a process it is going in. I'm sure you knew it would take years. Uh, so that's one thing. And then, of course, in your other area where you continuously, you and your family continuously to encourage students from across the United States and other places to keep going to Israel, to spend their gap year there, and uh, despite what happened to your daughter, to understand that uh, there's no better place to be than in Israel. It's all those messages that I think have... Uh, have always um, uh, given everybody a very positive impression of the way you've reacted to all this.
1: Well, the first thing was, after we got our judgment against Iran, the thing that hurt the most was that our own government turned against us and appeared in court over and over again on, on behalf of the Iranian government. And the release of money over the past um, um, 11 months, uh, billions and billions of dollars to the Iranian government, has, has been painful to, uh, to watch. That was money that should have gone to American victims of Iranian terror. It is money that should not have been released until Iran announced its support for terrorism, admitted that it had been the sponsor of terror attacks uh, around the world that killed Americans. And we, we, have a, we have a government that has just not stood up with, uh, with the, the Jewish people and with the Israeli people vis-à-vis terrorism. And what's also painful is you know this Palestinian campaign of day-in and day-out incitement delegitimizing yeah. the Jewish state, legitimizing our our contacts, uh, our contacts with Jerusalem, has not reached anything any high level of the State Department or the the administration other than a finger wagging at the Palestinians. You know, it continues on a daily basis, and and that's why each of us here in in the diaspora has to support Israel. We have to support through organizations such as Israel Bonds, and again, I urge people to come out Sunday night. Um, it's no reservations required in advance. The uh, program opens at 7:30, and, and and my good friend Bob Lunzer, who is uh, celebrating his 25th year with Bond, tells me that walk-ins are very very welcome.
0: All right, excellent. And, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm hoping to see everyone there. Kingsway Jewish Center, Sunday night, 7.30, Stephen Flato on a terror victim's father. One-man story. you get got an opportunity to come out for Israel Bonds and to support Israel Bonds, and you've heard why it's such a good idea to do so. Stephen Flato is 100% right. Everybody out there, make Israel as strong as possible, and Bonds is a wonderful way to do it. 212-446-5835. 212-446-5835. Steve Flato, thanks so much for joining us. Great to reunite in this fashion. (laughs)
1: Good
0: Shabbos now. Good Shabbos everyone who's listening. Have a wonderful Shabbos. That was my conversation with Stephen Flato this past Friday on JM and the AM in advance of the uh, Bonds event that happened this past weekend at the Kingsway Jewish Center. We'll wrap up JM Rewind uh, today with uh, a little bit of uh, great Jewish music for you at the Nachum Siegel Network.
5: Only after the darkest time of night. Do we see the first glistening ray of light? The twilight at the end of days, all bad, all we've had will dissipate. Night and day will come together to create a glow, and we'll see a new day. And all the world will know so hayo il maflho alaylo da romhoi da il so hayo il khayo da ¡Hala! And happiness and freedom
6: C'est will oh.
0: Up this edition of JM Rewind. Everybody in this wonderful Nahum Single Network audience, please remember that on Monday and Tuesday during JM and the AM, our uh, programs from Venice will be aired. You'll have an opportunity to hear about the 500th commemoration, 500 year commemoration of the Jewish Venetian ghetto. Uh, That's all happening Monday and Tuesday during JM and the AM. And of course, over the weekend, after we present the incredible concert in a Malava Malka form in the ghetto, Uh, We'll have that for you at MalcolmSiegel.com for you to enjoy both in audio and video fashion. I thank you for listening in. Make sure to tune in next week for another edition of JM Rewind right here at the Malcolm Siegel Network.